All right, Jason. So one of the common questions we get, I believe, when we have a client that we're getting ready to onboard, they ask, well, what's the point? Why hire a business broker when I can do all of this myself? You know, what's the value in it? Why hire you? What would you say? So I feel like this is a topic we've discussed in our own organization with other things like marketing, for instance, right? Um, Business owners tend to be very independent and we're problem solvers. So we always think, you know, let's just, we want to save cost. We want to retain control. So we want to do it ourselves. But what I've seen to be true and not only business brokerage, but other facets of businesses, bringing an expert in tends to produce a better result. Mm -hmm. And this is most likely the most important decision a business owner will make in their entire career. Very few people sell more than one company. And you've, if you're a business owner who's built a company over a few decades, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. this is, this is the, uh, the pinnacle of that journey. So when you go to sell, you could do it yourself to save from paying a commission, but you're at then risking what happens to the company while you're selling. You risk the relationship with clients, with your employees, what could happen with competitors, Um, you're risking the unknown, like, are you leaving money on the table, right? Mm. Um, You're risking the deal structure. You know, we had a client not long ago we closed a deal with that Mm. before they came to us, they had tried selling on their own. They had three separate transactions fall apart. And it wasn't because there was anything wrong with the business. It was because there there were principles that the parties weren't following, um, decisions that were being made that were outside of ha- what how you would typically sell a business. And the result was the deals never stuck, right? So then they came to us, and we ended up selling the company for more than those previous offers. Mm. So I feel like there's principles that have followed lead to a transaction that is typically going to be higher than if a seller would have sold it themselves. Mm. But also then the process is smoother. You know, like I have this... This list I put together, the 13 reasons why to use a business broker to sell your company, how using a business broker can increase the value of your company. Right. Um, You know, you and I have seen through this journey that we've taken, whether it's deals that other brokers listed or deals that sellers have tried to sell on their own, and we typically, I think in almost every case, we've got them a higher price. I can't think of one where we haven't got them a higher price. Um. And that's because of the principles we're following that we use in our business. So in this, I've listed this as number one because I think this is the most overlooked and most important aspect of selling the company, and that's confidentiality. Um, we've had clients tell us before, I really don't care if someone knows that I'm for sale. I don't see a positive reason to do that. I haven't seen a reason to let people know the company is for sale. What makes you say that? Well, first, let's let's kind of talk about all the things that could happen if um, you list a company yourself and it's visible to the public, the name is out there and people know who it is, or it's marketed in a way that you don't, you can guess who it is, even though you don't know the name, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, if you're the only dry cleaner in a town 
and the business broker list or the seller list dry cleaner in, you know, this town, anyone on a Google search can figure out, oh, this must be, you know, you know, ABC dry cleaners, right? Mm, right. Um, so with that being said, the, th- the things that could happen wrong, the, the business being, you know, the knowledge of the sale being made public, you have competitors who can take advantage of that and leverage that information. They can try to steal clients, but most importantly, they can try to steal employees. Mm-hmm. You can also find em- employees that find the sale, the knowledge of the sale out publicly. And then they become concerned about their future, right? Because they don't, they haven't had this conversation with the owner of the company. So they don't know what the owner's intentions are. They're picturing the worst case scenario, someone rolling in, buying the company and then getting rid of all the employees, not knowing that there's no buyer in their right mind who would do that. There's no strategic advantage to doing that, but they don't know because they're not available. They're not a part of the conversation. Right. And we've seen that recently. We've seen employees exit prior to the sale because they knew about the sale. They, they knew and they never had a conversation because Mm -hmm. it wasn't the, the, the confidentiality wasn't managed by the seller. Mm -hmm. And that employee out of fear made a decision that was better to jump than Mm -hmm. to wait for what may happen. Mm -hmm. And then they exited and went to another company. Mm -hmm. And then with that, they may have took relationships with them from clients. Mm -hmm. So Also, from a buyer's perspective, if I see a company advertised publicly and I see the name, I'm assuming that all these things are happening in the background. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. that competitors know. I'm assuming that clients know. And I'm assuming that um, employees know, which is the most important part of any company. So I'm less likely to even engage because I know that one of the parties involved, whether it be the seller or the broker, is not educated in the process of selling mm-hmm. a business. They're making poor decisions. Right. Um, they're probably not taking good advice because someone told them to not do this and they did it anyway. Or the employees may be packing their parachutes and that's the last thing. Because they, they may not leave until the day after the sale at that point mm-hmm. because they said, well, maybe it's not going to happen. I know it's for sale, but it may not be selling. Mm-hmm. And then when the closing happens and a new per, you know, new person, new name walks in the front door, they've had their resumes submitted. They've had interviews. They're gone, right? right? So I don't see any positive reason to market a company without confidentiality. Right, because you're saying any wise, qualified, vetted buyer would automatically see yellow flags, see red flags. Right. And be a little hesitant. Right. Right, right. right. Um, you know, and again, we the, the second point I have here is is employees and clients and why it's important to keep the knowledge of sale from them. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't educate your leadership that you will eventually be selling, right? Because mm-hmm. if you have leadership involved with the company who at, is going to stay on post-closing mm-hmm. and, and the buyer is going to lean on them, you have to have this conversation at some point that, hey, listen, I'm getting older in age. Uh, my life's going in a different direction. And if they're connected with the seller, they typically, they know like the vibe changes. They know something's happening. Yeah. So keeping them informed with the process makes it safe, but at the right time, maybe when you've mm-hmm. had the conversation, the broker listing agreement signed, maybe when you're under due diligence, under contract, maybe when you've exited due diligence, if there's a loan involved, lending's approved, then you start having the conversation, listen, hey, um, I'm selling the company mm-hmm. and 
Um, this buyer is great. We vetted, we chose this buyer. They're, they're going to, they have a great plan mm -hmm. to come in with this business. And, and you're going to be a very big part of that because now I'm leaving mm -hmm. and you or you or you is the, the, the largest knowledge holder in the company. Mm -hmm. So you are now going to be more valuable. I mean, you were valuable before, but now we've multiplied that because I'm leaving. So what makes the employees and the clients the most valuable part of this? Why is it so important to protect them? What role do they play in this whole transaction? So a business is a set of processes, assets, and people that turns a product or service into revenue. Mm -hmm. And you need those processes to be executed by people. You need those assets to be operated by people. And you need that product or service to be consumed by a client or a customer. And if you lose your client's or more importantly, your employees during the sale or right before a sale or right after a sale, you've, you've decreased the value of your company, right? Because the value of a business is measured by the amount of risk associated with, with taking that company over. Mm. And that can be measured by the size of the hole a seller leaves when they exit the company, mm -hmm. um, the amount of knowledge that leaves when the seller exits the company, and the amount of risk in something going wrong after the acquisition. Right. That makes sense. So the more involved the employees are with the processes and the less involved the owner is, makes it easier for a buyer to transition in. Right. Um, how many roles are left unfilled when the seller exits, right? One of, and this is kind of going off script a little bit, but one of the biggest mistakes I see sellers make in, on this topic here is having family members work in the business that are paid under market salaries and then or taking more benefits than salary that are not going to stay on post-acquisition. A lot of times it's a spouse. A spouse mm -hmm. may do the accounting, bookkeeping, admin. When that time comes and we're doing evaluation of the company, the client, I am not able in good faith to add both those salaries back because two people are exiting a company and being replaced by one. Right. And that's saying that one person can do the job and that's not practical. Right. So what we typically do then is we have to add in an expense for a replacement employee. Mm -hmm. So when, and, and then also there's an uncertainty of, well, what happens to those tasks in transition, mm -hmm. you know, you can bring in a bookkeeping firm, an accounting firm to handle that. You can train someone on admin. Um, that's something that I think a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of conversation about in business strategy is, you know, getting um, family out of the business prior to an acquisition. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I, I want to highlight that a little bit. You said that there's more about the business strategy. You know, if someone's preparing to sell and they had, they worked in the company and their spouse was in the day-to-day -day operations and they're preparing to exit and you're saying that that's going to lessen the value of their company, lessen, you know, they're leaving money on the table. Tell me then, or what I'm hearing, I should say, is that hiring a broker to identify those things and hiring someone who's an expert to help you strategize minimizing your day-to-day -day involvement in the company can help you 
get the most out of your company when you sell. Right. And, and bringing us into the process two, three, four, five years prior to selling, mm -hmm. a lot of times we'll get clients referred to us by accountants or attorneys, financial advisors, or the clients find us directly and they're like, yep, I want to sell. When do you want to sell? Yep, we're ready to go to market right now. We start doing our analysis of the business. We find out all these things that they're not deal killers, but it's kind of the death by a thousand cuts. All these mm. little decisions affect the saleability of the company. Not not making it unsaleable, but hindering the value and confidence a buyer has. So, and, and the same goes for like, we talk about, you know, going back to the subject of employees and clients on the client side, we'll see customer concentration issues, right? We'll see where, um, we, we saw this recently with a, one deal we looked at. We, we look at this business, it's a recurring revenue business with contracts in place, longstanding, 20 plus year track record. Great, great, A lot of great. employees, yeah. uh, almost a million dollars in EBITDA. Great. Oh yeah, by the way, 65% revenue comes from one client. No go. No go. Like you could sell it, but it's going to be half of what you expected mm -hmm. because there's risk associated that if that client leaves, then that revenue leaves too. And, and they'll say, well, there's multiple points of contact. And I've seen acquisitions happen in the past where like, like hospitals are big on this. Um, one of my um, mentors and I looked at buying a business a few years ago and it was a medical based business. And we found out through the due diligence process that what was happening with one of the local health providers, they were buying up little smaller medical entities and then bringing their own service in and moving these vendors out. So when you have customer concentration, you could have a large client that's used you for two decades, but then they get acquired. And all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, Jimmy, who I had that relationship with is gone now. And we have our own in-house team and who's doing this process now. Mm -hmm. And you're now, you've lost 65% of your revenue like that. Mm -hmm. Even if you have a contract, sometimes they'll buy that contract out or they'll default on the contract and just like pay you out mm -hmm. because for them, it's cheaper to bring in their own people to do it. And so looking at the customer makeup of business and saying, uh, Mr. Seller, you have a risk here that maybe you never thought about because you've this really profitable client who's made you a lot of money throughout the years but they make up too much of your revenue. So we need to diversify this. And before you sell, you're going to be leaving money on the table if you don't go find mm -hmm. five or six more clients to represent. Um, so this client represents a smaller portion of your revenue. Mm -hmm. But that conversation doesn't typically happen. So we get to going where, where a client is, one of our clients is ready to sell. Mm -hmm. They may be ready for retirement. Uh, a medical event happens or something happens where they have to sell. And this comes up. Mm -hmm. We have a time constraint. Well, that's not a problem we can get rid of in months. That's mm -hmm. years. Right. So bringing a broker in on the front end of the process is so important so that we can highlight these things that you may didn't think of because you're, you're been building a business. Our job is to know what can prevent that business from selling or selling at the highest price. Mm -hmm. You, I want to skip ahead a little bit on our list. Um, yeah. It, you're highlighting profit versus value. Essentially, revenue isn't the only thing that people look at when they're buying a business. And so if you're like, oh yeah, I'm making great money. You know, we're in this great season right now. Profits are up. They've been up year after year for the last five years. That's not everything a buyer is looking at. And so, with, you know, you're looking at employees, clientele, other things. Can you highlight that a little bit? Like what goes into 
maximizing the value so that we can list at the highest price possible, get the seller the highest price possible, uh, and not leave money on the table. So that's a long list. Maybe another episode. I'll I'll go over (laughs) some of the, some of like the mountaintops there, some of the wave tops, the most important things. Um, I've seen this time and time again. You can take a business that makes less, less revenue but has a non-owner operator running the business and pair it up next to a business that has a longer track record, larger revenue for a longer period of time, and the business with the non-owner operator will sell for more money. Mm-hmm. Maybe not more money, but a higher multiple mm-hmm. of the net revenue and will sell faster. Mm-hmm. You've seen it. When we, we take a business where the owner has put a non-owner operator or as like EOS would say, an integrator running the company. And the owner is acting as the visionary now and they are passing down their vision to the integrator who's running the company. And even better if you have an operator who is is a visionary too, like a CEO type. We have a company we sold last year where you had a rare case where all the owners did was legal oversight and review contracts. Mm-hmm. And you had a CEO running a, a, a company of only 47 employees and doing it at a record profit margin because the systems and processes were so dialed. The CEO was dialed. He knew his market. He knew his clients. He knew what he was doing. And so this guy was out there just slaying the market, dominating in a business of only 47 employees. And that's because they check these boxes Mm -hmm. and having this conversation three, four, five years in advance and saying, here's all the things that are going to maximize your company that don't cost you a dime. Mm -hmm. Or if they do cost you, it's a minimal investment and they don't always directly benefit Mm -hmm. profit. You know, for example, documenting processes and procedures so that if someone goes away, Mm -hmm. they fire, they they get fired, terminated, they quit. Mm -hmm. There's a documented process you can hand to your HR person, your training person, or you yourself and say, as, as the buyer or the seller too, if it's before closing, and you can onboard someone quickly and, and replace them in that position, you're going to maximize value of that business because then the buyer knows, okay, someone has gone to the, the length to come up with a plan for the worst case scenario, which means there's probably you know, clues that other areas of the business are sorted. When you start to see things on the surface that haven't been addressed, buyer, we've seen this. Buyers start asking questions. Well, if this is an issue, like, for example, we had, a, we had a deal recently where there was a storage unit that no one knew about, we didn't know about, never came up in any of our conversations with the seller. And it was, it's a $47 a month expense. Not a big deal at all. Um, but we're post-due diligence the seller said, I've told, I've, I've disclosed everything I know. And all of a sudden the storage unit comes up and it's, well, what's the storage unit for? What's in the storage unit? What's this about? And then the, that spiral starts happening. What do I not know? What else do I not know? What have you not mm-hmm. told me? And then something else popped up. Mm-hmm. Um, again, inconsequential, non-financial, small, but it, it hinders trust. Mm-hmm. So on the other side of that, if you button all this stuff up and on the service side, the buyer sees you have 
a non-owner-operator, you have process and procedures, you have a hiring HR policy, you have a training process in place, you have a sales process in place, you have sales scripts, you have um, you have plans on when you're, you have maybe a CapEx plan on when you're replacing assets. Um, you have documented proof that you have a plan to run the company, you're not doing it by the seat of your pants. Mm-hmm. You're going to attract more buyers mm-hmm. because... But you're competing for buyers as much as buyers are competing for deals. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a seller's market like it is right now, you're still competing for their attention. Mm -hmm. And they may be reviewing 50 deals a week, you know, like real qualified buyers who are looking to relocate, who are looking to spend lots of capital. Um, You're competing for their attention. And so you need to, provide evidence to them that you have a well put together business. Right. How are you going to stand out? And and, and the whole purpose of hiring a broker is to a help you identify those things and B help you value those things to increase the list. your asking price, your listing price, because if you think, Oh, it's just profit. Uh, I'll just put two times, you know, revenue or two times, whatever. And you know, we see that we hear that. Is that what is what sellers might be expecting? We're like, well, you might be leaving this on the table because you have a well-run oiled machine as a business and you're not involved in the, you know, the everyday and you have all of these books. Let's try three times or, you know, let's try this and, and see what the market will bear. And I think that's huge to, that speaks volumes to um, the importance of a business broker of right. having the expert help you get the most out of, you know, your hard earned money that you've put in your heart, your business is blood, sweat and tears, you know, so why not try to get as much as you can out of it? Right. Well, let me touch on competitors real quick and then we're going to circle back to this. So the other thing that most sellers don't take in consideration is the risk of competitors Um, and competitors coming in under the disguise as a buyer Mm. to find out about your business because they may want just to get the marketing packet because they think there may be something juicy in there. Right. Or they may want to see what, you know, maybe a list of employees And so that goes into, for confidentiality, what data do you put in the marketing packet and share? Right. I I have, businesses I've tried to look at and buy myself, and when we've worked with buyers, you know this is one of my pet peeves, I have before two different things. I've submitted inquiries on listings and got like a response with tax returns. Yeah, we got that one time I helped you put an inquiry and we didn't hadn't even signed an NDA and a broker sent us all the information on the business, employees right. and everything. Yeah, names of employees, tenure in the in the business, salaries. Without an NDA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was mortified for the seller. Yeah. Um and, and uh or they put things in the marketing packet even when you sign the NDA cuz the, the NDA is a mechanism to uh handle what happens when there's a breach of confidentiality, mm-hmm. but you still monetarily, you can do something about that, but the, it's right. been breached. So right. right. The, the cat's out of the bag. And, um, I've seen people put client names, employee names, because let's play this out for a second. Say I'm, I'm a bad actor in, in your industry and I see something for sale and I want to know who it is. So I contact my broker mm-hmm. and, uh, I provide proof of funds. I sign the NDA it's a, it's a, it, you know, I'm working with a very qualified broker. So I've checked the boxes of a qualified buyer. Um, and then you give me the SIM and you have 
who's your field manager, your operations manager? Well, I know what they're getting paid. I'll offer them a raise. I go to LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. Hey, John Smith. I see you're the operations manager of ABC Company. Right now, I see you're getting paid seventy thousand a year. Do you know how much under market that is? I'll make you a deal. Give me a two-year contract to give you a ten thousand dollars sign-on bonus. I bump you to ninety thousand dollars a year. Right. I now know my competitors have a hard time selling that company if I get you know John Smith. That's all it takes. I've now disrupted that entire company because a broker was acting in, um, ne- was acting negligently and sharing information you shouldn't have shared. So knowing what information to share at what time mm-hmm. can save your business when you're when you're selling. Mm-hmm. And these are things that <laughs> we're going to do a whole topic on what questions to ask a business broker and how to pick a business broker, but. This is why hiring a professional is so important because if you don't know what information to share and not share, you could tank your company going to market, right? Even with someone who might be a professional. Yeah. Like you said, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to throw shade at anyone. No, 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 no. But I, I got into this business because I want to help business owners. And I, it, part of that is protecting them. Another part of that is making sure we maximize this one opportunity they've worked their whole life for. Mm-hmm. And that's why we create these processes and that's why we are very detailed. And that's why we do things and, mm-hmm. and we get pushback all the time. Why do you need all this? Just trust me. Right. We've right. built this process because this is what works. Right. And you are and have been, you've had several businesses and owned several businesses and sold. Yeah. And you've, you've been on the other end. You know, I've heard your stories. You know what it's like to sell a business and, yeah. and what goes into that yeah. and how complicated it is. I mean, the process of selling a company is intense. I mean, we're professionals and it's still a lot to deal with. It's complicated. Yes. Yeah. And it, and that's a whole, we'll, we'll chase that rabbit another day. So jumping on the subject of valuations, and I think this is where people, people think this is the easiest part. And also I think it is sometimes becomes the top it becomes too much the center of attention mm-hmm. in, in selling a business. What makes you say that? Well, I think that um, I see this with accountants a lot. They'll look at like what the business reference guide says is the multiple for this industry. And they'll say it's a range mm-hmm. and they always want to assign the highest end of the range. Mm-hmm. But what they don't know is there's data behind that to determine what that, why that range is there. For example, okay. That could be asset value, right? You could look at a deal. Let's say a construction company may mm-hmm. sell between X and Y. Um, well, X is a company that has brand new equipment. They may have, um, you know, 20, 30, 40% more in asset value. Um, it could be contracts. It could be progress pipeline, uh, the work in progress pipeline value. Mm-hmm. It could be the structure of the company, right? So when you're looking at a company, and you want to just throw a random number to it and say, well, companies sell for three times earnings. Okay. If it was that simple, why wouldn't everyone do it? Good point. <laughs> why is a business appraisal four to $6,000 if it's that simple? Why do business appraisals typically range from 180, 120 pages if it was that simple? Um, but there's, there's a few things that go into that. There's the science of business evaluation. There's the non-financial 
items that affect value. Mm -hmm. There is the data itself. Mm -hmm. Where's the data coming from? Mm -hmm. You know, for example, anyone can go on biz by sell and look what things are listing for and assume that that's, it's like Zillow. You can assume that's what things are worth, but you don't know what things are transacting for because business transactions are not recorded on public record, like on Zillow. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to have access to the data. We, we, we pay thousands of dollars a year for, Mm -hmm. you know, we pay large sums of money to access lender databases, Mm -hmm. um, private equity group databases, mergers, acquisition databases. Like we, we pay lots of money for this data and it's not just having it, but it's how to interpret it and how to apply it and knowing, um, in what circumstances that this is a comparable, comparable sale to this company and what's not knowing the different, knowing the complexities of the industry, knowing Mm -hmm. that, you may take a industry, for example, metal fabrication. Well, are they fabricating railings and ladders? Are they fabricating structural steel? Are they doing decorative steel and art? Are they doing repairs? Are they doing heavy equipment modifications? Um, the nature of the revenue from all those industries is going to be different. The valuation is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And that's something that an amateur or a owner may overlook. And they may just say, well, businesses like this always sell for this much money. Maybe they don't know the working capital is included. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get to a larger size deal, buyers are expecting working capital and they're expecting um, maybe a little bit of accounts receivable with that deal. So if you don't know that, you could be setting yourself up for failure, not selling the company or mm-hmm. selling it for too little. Mm-hmm. Unintentionally. Right. Still important to have someone who knows what they're talking about, what they're looking at, and how to interpret the data. Right. Yeah. I mean, getting the valuation done is probably the easiest part of what we do because it's numerical, it's data driven. Um, there's, you know, some things that are objective in it, but um, or sub, I mean, subjective in it, but mm-hmm. mostly it's like it's it's data driven. So you can make this decision based on historically what we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, building the marketing to sell the company that is something that a only a professional can do. I can give someone new the multiples and how to use the math formulas to do the calculation. Mm-hmm. But um, knowing what questions to ask are going to be important to have in, in the, um, in the marketing packet is a whole nother it's a whole nother thing. Like you, this is your main yeah. forte. So, you know, and you know, kind of diving into one of my other points on here is the skills needed to sell a company, right? So you yeah. need to analyze the company. We need to know possible deal structures, you know, how to market the company, how to work with lenders, how to keep momentum to get the deal closed. Um, being able to analyze the data and know, how it's going to affect the sale, like looking mm-hmm. for customer concentration issues, mm-hmm. looking for issues like, well, the lease is running out and there's no option. Mm-hmm. So we know now it may SBA lending may be off the table. So maybe if you've got three years left on your lease, we know the SBA is going to want to lease the loan term. So mm-hmm. 10 years, if they don't own the property, um, we need to then go ask the landlord for start having the conversation about extensions or about options. Mm-hmm. Because if we go to market and we bring a buyer 
mm-hmm. buyers in due diligence and buyer says, okay, let's talk about lease assignment. It's like, well, we have three mm-hmm. years left. They're seeking lending. Mm-hmm. So now we have to go to the landlord while we're on under contract. Now we've given the landlord all the leverage. Landlord's like, well, you were paying $13 a square foot plus cam. And I see you want to sell. I'm not really sure about your buyer's qualifications. So I think to offset my risk, we're going to raise your rent to $17 a square foot plus cam. And cam's increasing because we've done an evaluation on what it costs to maintain the property. Because you simply did not ask the question, is this important? Mm -hmm. Now you've given all of the leverage of your company to someone else. Mm -hmm. And the fate of your company, because you're in, you know, a location-based business, retail or services where people come in to see you, you've now given them all the control. You've shown all your cards. Yeah. And now you can't get that back because he knows you want to sell. So then when, when your lease renewal comes up, even if you don't sell, he knows that you need to maintain that space or she knows you need to maintain that space and you're at risk of them jacking your rent. Right. And just because you didn't have the sale, the skills and, and, there's nothing wrong with that. But I know when I first came into this, you told me, I asked, you know, how do you learn this? How do you learn business brokerage? Like there's not business brokerage school, you know, really, truly. And you said it's just by doing it and being right. working with the experts. You know, we're fortunate enough that, that, uh, we work with quite literally the most knowledgeable and experienced people in the nation. Uh, but, you just do it by repetition and, and the more businesses you sell, the more you learn about deal making and the more you learn about, uh, all the potential issues that you can, uh, maybe prevent or maybe, uh, try to dig up beforehand and, and figure out how to mitigate those before, you know, you get into due diligence or all, all everything that goes into a business transaction. It's simply just by having the experience of doing it. And so if right. you've only ever sold one business in your life and you're, you're doing that now, I mean, you just don't know. You don't know what, what you're facing. Right. And to speak to that, so we're fortunate we have, I believe, the longest standing business broker in the United States, our broker of record, Bert Risden. Um, he is a wealth of knowledge. And him and so Herb Stewartson, our vice president, are both – the two most knowledgeable business brokers I've ever met. And that's why I went to Florida Business Exchange Right. when I met them. But there's not a week that goes by, and, and I'm, I think I'm very skilled at what I do, but that I will not call them and they have a piece of knowledge that they can transfer to me. Mm-hmm. And so every week I'm learning, even though we, we're top in sales in 2021, mm-hmm. um, you know, we sell... A, large amount of businesses, I'm still learning Mm -hmm. and we're doing, we're looking at tons of transactions, but the the process never stops. And so the skill development never stops, you know, becoming an expert, like business analysis, deal structure, marketing, that's a whole nother, like these are all long topics. We can break down an individual podcast on like, how do you market a business confidentially without letting anyone know it's for sale? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you know what deal structure do you expect? Right. If you have a business that has um, few assets, but a large asking price, high multiple, and the valuation is a little further up, maybe there's some things in the past that aren't as like uh, when we're coming out of COVID, this was very common. You would have a bad year, you know, sandwiched between two good years of financials. Um, 
it is likely to expect some form of seller financing involved in that transaction and then navigating the process of having to negotiate that between the two parties mm -hmm. so that you have a transaction that both parties feel like they're getting a win. Mm -hmm. No one feels like they're getting strong arm because that's another, that's another common mistake that sellers make is they think this is real estate and they think they can strong arm a buyer. Let me mm -hmm. tell you what, you are selling something you cannot see. Uh, I can hire an inspector to go inspect a piece of real estate and hire a real estate attorney to go dig up every piece of title and deed information I need. Mm -hmm. I can hire a title insurance company to do all the investigations I need. I know everything about that property without even having to set foot on site. You cannot do that with a business because you're buying a set of processes, people, and assets. We're even buying the people. You're, you're buying the fact that they're at that company, but they can leave at any point. Mm -hmm. And I'm buying a very risky asset that could fall apart if I manage it poorly. I mean, we've seen deals where um, the seller sells it and the buyer takes it over and 30 days later, it's running better than ever. Mm -hmm. um, I would say we, the opposite is very few. I've only can think of one deal in the past where the the buyer ran it more poorly than the seller did. Mm -hmm. But in most cases, the, the buyer runs it better than the seller because the seller ha is looking at it from the same set of eyes they've looked at it for the last mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, but going back to the skills, the only way you're going to develop these is by doing deals and mm -hmm. by having very hard conversations with buyers and sellers and keeping deals on track. One of the things that we're known for is our close rate. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't recalculated in the last six months, but I know before it was around 80% of the deals that we listed, we closed. What's the industry average or market average? I think it's around 30. That's a big difference. Um, yeah. Now, don't quote me on I, I That's what I think. It's 30, 40%, somewhere in that range. But also, the deals that we get under contract that close were in the 90s. Mm. Um, once we get them out of due diligence, they typically always close. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because the way we vet the listing and mm -hmm. build the packet up until going to market. Mm -hmm. You'll never see me bring a listing agreement into an appointment with a seller and say, how much do you want to sell this for? Oh, okay. You want this much? Never seen the financials. How many employees you got? Okay. What's your asset value? Okay. Here's my listing agreement signed right here. Why not? Because if I take a listing, which I have done this in the past, taking a listing that was overvalued or wasn't priced right, I'm not doing the seller any justice or myself because now my staff is working hard to sell a listing that we know is overpriced and the seller, I've set that expectation that they can get that price. So in order for me to do what's right by the seller, I need to do a full analysis of the business. It's not just financials, that is operations, that is every aspect of the business right. so that we have a clear expectation of our strengths and weaknesses and how that's going to affect our valuation. Mm -hmm. So no one's disappointed. But typically, again, we've got results to back this up. Our multiples are typically a little above market because we get compliments all the time by private equity groups, some of the largest in the country, that our packets are the best they've ever seen. We try to remove as many questions as they may have going into a buyer-seller meeting. So when they reviewed the packet, they're very confident in their decision on in having interest in this business. Right. So when we get to the point of having a meeting with the parties, um, the questions are very important questions and 
very focused on getting the transaction done versus well, how'd you start the business? Mm-hmm. How many employees do you have? Who does this? What role, right. uh, what role handles payroll? Who orders the product? Who monitors the sales process? If a buyer is asking those questions in a meeting, if it's, you know, sometimes maybe they don't read the packet well, but typically it's because the information wasn't made available in a way that kept it confident, kept it, the uh, proprietary information confidential, but also engage the buyer where they were interested in the business. Right. And in the long run, you're just, everyone's kind of wasting time. Right. Sitting around asking questions. Well, you're not getting, you're not getting buyer seller meetings or you're getting unqualified buyers. You know, we want to create an environment where the best buyer rises to the top, mm-hmm. who is the best fit for the deal. Because if I've learned one thing in this industry, one of the most important things is having an optimistic buyer who believes in the business before you even get under contract. If they're asking hard questions that they don't have answers to or they don't like before you even getting under due diligence, the deal is probably going to come apart very quickly. As soon as they find the first thing that doesn't align with their expectations, you might lose that buyer. Right. So it's important to communicate as clearly as you can at, you know, each level of marketing has a different level of confidentiality prior to the, any marketing they see prior to the NDA is, is very neutered so that there's nothing um, that could be used to figure out who the business is. Mm-hmm. But even once the NDA is signed, the information you release is very much um, tailored to protect the seller so that if the deal doesn't close, there's nothing that was given away that was proprietary. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have an educated broker or if you're the seller trying to put this together yourself, that's most likely not going to happen. You know, one of the things I always tell sellers, I said, even if you don't list with me, I think you should mystery shop a broker. You should engage on their listing and see how they respond. Mm -hmm. How long does it take them to respond? Mm -hmm. What do they ask for to qualify you? What questions do they ask you as the buyer? Because they're going to do the same thing for your buyers. Mm-hmm. So you need to make sure that's, that meets your expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't do it to me. I won't tell my staff you're coming because <laughs> I want to see how they're going to perform. Right. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah. But you've seen me too. You've seen me in meetings where I've shut a buyer down who came in, who seemed like a bad actor and they didn't, they didn't meet our qualifications. And I was very, I was very straight. I was straight to the point. Like, listen, we are not going to release that level of information at this point. And if that is your requirement mm-hmm. to move forward with this deal, I would say that your expectations are out of align with what the typical process is. Mm-hmm. You know, we are not going to release tax returns until we're under due diligence. Right. It's not going to happen. Um, I mean, unless for some reason the seller says it's okay, but I don't know why that would be needed when all of that information is reflected in a spreadsheet mm-hmm. that we are willing to disclose very granular detail in, but you're just not getting the original documents. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see a need. And so if you don't have the expertise in, um, in navigating these deals, you may make a mistake that may expose your business. Right. And that, can be detrimental to the saleability. Right. You you mentioned deal making a little bit. The next point is deal making. So that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, what 
does it even mean to be an expert in deal making? Why why cannot anyone just show up and and share what information they feel comfortable with buyers and then pick the buyer they think is best suited or has the highest intent? You know, what is the purpose of what we do? Well, this goes for any type of transactional relationship, um, whether it's real estate, aviation brokerage, business brokerage, you know, yacht brokerage. Understanding the psychology of the transaction, understanding that you have a seller who has something they've built, they're very proud of and protective over, and a buyer who has a lot of fear and has the worst case scenario in their mind. Mm-hmm. It you have to know how to navigate that relationship. And if you don't, if you're not the buffer between the two of them, that you're gonna you're gonna see that things are sometimes taken personal. Because um, I get to be bad cop on both sides. I can go to the seller and say, "Listen, I'm I'm going to tell you very straightforward. This is what a buyer is going to expect, and this buyer is being very reasonable. I can understand if you don't want to do this, but if you want the best buyers because you're competing for them, this is probably something you're going to have to do." And I can go the same way to the buyer and say, "You know, Mister or Miss Buyer, what you're asking for is out of is out of alignment with the seller's expectations or the norms, and this is what." This is what's being expected, right? Because we're transaction brokers. Our job is to be a conduit of communication. We're not steering the deal. We're not telling the parties what to do or what not to do. But we are acting as the communicator to bring the two together. Like we are a matchmaker. So our Mm -hmm. job is to understand what the two parties want and find the two parties that are the best fit. Mm -hmm. But then also to help them navigate this very emotional Mm -hmm. and difficult process and relay communication in a way that like there's sometimes... There's sellers, we have to filter what they say because you know if we say it exactly how they said it, um, it will be it would be construed as very negative. Right. So we have to we have to use um our own wording on how to communicate the exact same points, but in a more gentle way. And same thing for buyers, especially when you get on the subject of price, right? And if there's price negotiations, we have to basically be the sounding board and say, Well, Mr. Seller, here's most likely why this buyer is asking for that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, right? Because we're they're the ones making the decision. We're never advising them on what decisions to make. We're advising them on the most likely scenarios of what's going to happen. Ultimately, it's their choice of what they want to do. But we're the sounding board of, okay, this is what I've seen historically. This is what may be normal, but it's your choice. Mm-hmm. I'm just here to help you navigate the process and have you ask yourself the hard questions. Have mm-hmm. you, Mr. Buyer, ask yourself, Mr. and Ms. Seller, ask yourself the hard questions. Um, so you have the emotions that go into it of yeah. people in two very serious, uh, times in their life of acquiring or selling a business, but then you have the logistics that go into it of yes. transactions. And, and, uh, the most, one of the most valuable tools to our disposable is uh, disposal is the SBA. So knowing how to navigate the SBA, I think that alone is a reason to use a broker I'm not going to give away all my secrets, but I will say this deals that are SBA pre-qualified. So for they sell easier, I'll leave it at that than businesses that are not Mm -hmm. Um, because buyers know if these deals are SBA pre-qualified, then someone has seen tax returns that can improve the business cash flows enough to support the loan. Mm -hmm. 
So if you, and that's just the, the first part, but knowing how to put an SBA deal together in itself mm-hmm. is a challenge if you don't know how to navigate that. And then also then coach the buyer on what to expect, what, what, and then the seller too, because um, SBA deals are, it's like giving, the, it's a giving up a pound of flesh, right? Um, at, at the 11th hour, underwriters are going to start asking for mm-hmm. things that you never expected. It's almost like you, the more time you give underwriters, the more creative questions they come up with. Like, um, can you give me a hair sample of your second child <laughs> along with a copy of their birth certificate and their fingerprints? Why? Just because. Just because I need it to give you the money. <laughs> yeah. So knowing how to navigate that and also giving, you know, again, deal structure expectations. Like it's very common that they're seller financing in cases like this, or um, we have a buyer who's willing to, maybe pay you a little higher multiple, but it's going to require SBA financing. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, in your industry, like if you have a restaurant, it's very common to have seller financing because getting lending on restaurants is very difficult. So knowing this and setting these expectations ahead of time. Right. 